Good morning, I'm Dave Selvig, and our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 6 from the New American Standard Bible. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the water, the rain that often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the hearts of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. 
And uh, before we get into the sermon, just a couple of comments about Thanksgiving. Uh, I was sitting there and I was just feeling really thankful for this year. And we've had a really good year as a church. Um, I love seeing the staff in motion. I love uh, receiving leadership from Jared as he leads us through these songs and creates an ambiance and a mood and uh, really helpful for my soul. And, you know, music penetrates in a way that words like from a sermon just cannot do. And so I really appreciate that. I think about, I saw Michelle walking in here with her gang. Where's Michelle? There she is. And all the great work she's doing. And some of you don't benefit from receiving the scoop, which is the newsletter she writes, but it just just creates happiness in me when I receive that every Thursday. Think about uh, Brent and his ministry. I popped in there uh, this week to see what the kids are doing, and they're having so much fun, and they are learning about God and building a framework for their lives and laying a foundation on which they're going to build the rest of their life. And I'm so thankful to have a um, safe and holy person like Brent uh, working with our kids, and Julie and all that she does, and all her little quirks up here, and <laughs> uh, just filled with Thanksgiving. I was thinking about all the lay people who are serving our church, and the captains of ministries uh, leading the charge, and the uh, ways that they have transformed the church this year, and the fact that all of you have been uh, giving financially, and now we are uh, we've been in the black for months now, and uh, Julie's comment is, well, I've, I've never seen that, and uh, it's just amazing, and I'm really thankful, so thank you that, uh, thankful that we can be church together. A uh, couple of other comments about Thanksgiving. Uh, the first thing is I want to encourage you with REI to opt outside on Friday. A little rule that I've set for myself is for every minute I spend outside on Friday, I get to be online inside. And so uh, I'm going to go do something, maybe a hike a mountain or something like that on Friday. Another one I want to encourage you to uh, opt out of is taking pictures of your food on Thursday. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. Nobody cares. You might as well put up a video of your child's like recital or something. Even you won't watch that. Um, it's true, right? You, won't, you don't go back and watch recital videos, do you? No, you don't do that. Okay, so uh, don't take pictures. And then uh, now a helpful tidbit for relating to family and those close to you emotionally. Uh, people who are close to us emotionally have the uncanny ability to press our buttons. You know this? And if you've been around here, you know the reason uh, that they know how to press our buttons so well is because they've installed them over the course of your lifetime. So you have two choices on Thanksgiving when you're with your family. You get to either be reactive to these folks in your life, like you let them define how you feel and what you say and how Thanksgiving goes for you, or you maintain a self-differentiation. Self-differentiation just means that you are regulating yourself. You know, you're a warm-blooded creature. Outside is cold or hot, doesn't matter. You are 986 and so on Thanksgiving, when you're with your family, you can do that. You can choose to be happy, choose to smile, choose not to be defined by those around you. So you have two choices, reactivity or self-differentiated. So just right now, just make a choice. I'm going to be self-differentiated. I'm not going to have my buttons pressed. And if they do get pressed, 
It's going to be dead buttons. They're not going to do anything. Yes? All right, we'll, have, we'll try. Okay, we're in the middle of a series uh, in the book of Hebrews called Witness in Christ and Culture. And uh, I've been encouraging us to bear witness, meaning to bring our firsthand accounts of our relationship with Christ into the culture. Not stuff we made up, not just sort of uh, a more uh, hearsay approach to our faith, but to ask the question, what do we really believe? Who are we? And be honest about that as we engage our culture. And today, I want to tackle this topic, this huge topic that the chapter calls salvation. What does it mean to you that you are being saved? How does salvation work? When you say, if you're here in church, you label yourself a Christian, and you say, I am being saved, I'm saved by Jesus, I'm saved by grace, what does that mean? What's happening inside? What's the experience of being saved like? What's your testimony about that? What's your firsthand account of the term salvation? My personal experience of salvation, really, if I am honest and candid about this, I mean, I'm a professional Christian. Uh, To be a professional means that you're getting paid, and I'm getting paid to be a Christian. But honestly, if if I'm honest about it, salvation is really mysterious to me. It's a whole lot of weird. It's very, very confusing. I don't really understand it. That's part of, for me, what it's like to be saved. I know that I am. I think I understand. I have moments sort of when it becomes clear. You know, it's kind of like the squiggly lines I see in my vision sometimes because my prescription is so high. Uh, I have this retinal thing, and sometimes I see these squiggly worms, and then I look for it, and I can't find them anymore. That's what Jesus is like. He's like a squiggly worm in my, ret- in my retina. He's there, but he's not there. I swear he's there, but then he's gone. I can't prove him to you. I can't show him to you. You have to see it in your own vision somehow. Uh, I want to ask some of these questions, okay? And I want you to think about your answers as we engage this topic. Number one, what does being saved mean to you, if anything? How is it relevant to you? Why do you care about being saved? What's it doing for you? Another question. When do you most acutely feel a need or desire for salvation? You know, it's one thing to have an opinion or a thought. It's another thing to feel something. You know, when do you feel it? Third, when do you feel most distant from this ancient concept and language? When is it just sort of like, what are these Christians talking about? What is the Bible about? You must have those moments when you are engaging some scientific thing or you love pop culture or you're having a great time with your friends. Just like, God, who? Lastly, if you are a Christian, why are you a Christian? 
And if you are not a Christian, why are you here at church? What pulled you here? I just watched Star Wars. I have to make a tractor beam reference. There's no tractor beam here. You came here. Why are you here? What are you hungry for? Uh, This is a uh, difficult topic. It really is. And I want to encourage you to be honest about it. Because your honesty about it, your naked truth about your experience, your feelings, and your thoughts about salvation is actually going to be helpful to you. Denying the complexity of it, denying the mystery of it isn't going to help you. You know, and if you are concerned about bearing witness to somebody else, a false testimony isn't going to be helpful. You know, how, how long can you keep up the shenanigans? You know, sometimes I feel like we as a church are sort of just in cahoots with each other. It's like, okay, guys, what are we doing? I don't know. What did he say? I don't know. What is the Bible about? I don't know. But uh, let's go out there and fake it till we make it. All right, break. Honestly, what do you think about it? Why are you a Christian? I think that um, salvation for me, I grasp it in seasons. There are moments when salvation is so real to me. Like I was paddleboarding this week, and I was praying because I didn't want to fall in. Stand up paddleboarding, going, God, the water temperature is 56 degrees right now. I do not want to fall. But I had so much confidence I wasn't going to fall. I didn't even wear a bathing suit. I just wore normal pants. But I had this sort of moment. I was out there. There was sun shining on me. And I had paddled from uh, Lake Washington on the east side over to uh, Bellevue. You know, those two, like, little things that jut in on the north side of Mercer Island. Um, His beautiful homes. And then I paddled up to the Mercer Slough. And there's just sort of ducks around me and little critters scurrying away. And the sun was breaking through some leaves. And I was having this moment. And I just, I stopped paddling. I knelt. And I just started praying. And I was praying these sincere prayers. And I felt sort of this, I had this experience where time stopped. And I found tears welling up in my eyes. And I wanted to give my whole life and whole self to God. I did. God was as real as anything. And then I woke up from that moment and I paddled home and life just took over. So for me, salvation and God really happens in seasons and steps. And sometimes I think spirals. What I mean by that is you come back around to the same thing, but you're not the same. So you're at a different place, spiraling up or spiraling down. It's a process. It's it's evolutionary. I think God, by definition, really can't be fully comprehended. By definition, because if he's God, he's bigger than your brain, yes? If your brain could comprehend it, it's not God, it's your brain. So God has to be bigger than me. So, of course, there's going to be tension and growth and challenge to this thing we call God and salvation, of course. Uh, This is a hard chapter for me, I think for you too, to feel, to understand, and even harder, I think, to teach. But uh, one of the values, the payoff uh, here is I would just want us to read it. Because if we don't read it during a series in Hebrews, we're never going to read chapter 6. 
It's just going to skim it and go right on to chapter 7. And chapter 7 is about Melchizedek. And so we're going to skip chapter 7. So I just want us to do that. And I, I want us to read every verse in the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to try to tackle it as best as I can. I went 44 minutes long, including a four-minute co- commentary about Thanksgiving. It's about 40-minute sermon. I'm going to try to keep it in the 30s uh, this time. But uh, just a, some, if you can cut me some slack, because it's chapter 6, folks. It's a hard one. All right? So two things we're going to study today. Uh, one, principles regarding salvation. And two, Jesus, the author of salvation. And that'll be our application and conclusion. Okay, so principles regarding salvation. Okay, verse 1 gives us the first principle. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Principle 1 is salvation is a complex and difficult undertaking. Salvation is a complex and difficult undertaking. Um, I have this feeling when I come to this chapter that I'm up against something that's incredibly relevant to me because I understand certain things, but then I feel at the same time like I'm up against something so much bigger and beyond myself. It's so utterly confusing. And that's okay. This word maturity in verse 1 is the word perfect in the Greek. It means to be complete, to be whole, to be totally actualized. It's the word that's sometimes translated perfect. We are pressing on to perfect, but the fact that I don't understand these things shows me that I am not perfect. And that's the nature of salvation. The word salvation, uh, as a word, means that you are headed in one direction, that all of your cells in your body, all of the momentum of your life, your character, nature, and nurture, all heading, causing you to go in this one direction, but it's fatal. It's going to kill you. It's not what you want. It's not where you want to go. But then there's an outside intervention, and it changes the direction that you were headed And so salvation, by the definition of the word itself, means outside intervention. That the task is so large and so complex and difficult that you yourselves are too much in it to be able to change the direction. You can't change the course of your own life if we're talking about salvation. For example, I can manage myself. I can tweak how I manage you know, sort of a self-improvement plan, or I can make little adjustments here and there. I can even make little changes, you know. I was thinking about what changes that I enjoy in my life these days that weren't always true. Like, I learned to like oatmeal. Like, I didn't always like oatmeal. And uh, I realized that these days, I am more considerate of people's feelings. But for, for the most part, I didn't care that much about how other people felt. I know that's pretty sociopathic of me. But I'm growing in this area. 
It's little changes here or there, but it's something that I have a finger on. You know, it's like, you know, oatmeal is good for me. I, I want to live long and I want to see my kids, so I'm going to eat more oatmeal. I made that change, but that's entirely different than what salvation is. Salvation is a complex, difficult undertaking that is from some other source besides yourself. Otherwise, we don't call it salvation. We just call it improvement. If you're talking about salvation, by definition, it's an outside intervention. Something other than you. Some entity that's smarter than you, wiser than you, more powerful than you, deciding on your behalf that you need to not go that way anymore. That's what intervention is. There's a force to it. There is an an agency beyond yourself acting on you. That's salvation. And what that means for you, if salvation is so complex and difficult that it's an outside intervention, okay, that means that salvation, by definition, is going to contradict you. You're not capable of choosing it yourself. Otherwise, you would. You're not capable of appreciating it or agreeing with it or being thankful for it. It's going to violate the choices you would have made for yourself because all the choices you've made for yourself have led to this moment causing you to head in that direction. If God is going to save you, He's not going to just fix you up a little bit and set you back where you were better like 10 years ago. Like you didn't go off the rails 10 years ago and then God brings you back because if he brings you back to where you were, you're going to end up exactly where you were because it led you here. Because it's your will and your choices, your preferences, your nature, your nurture at work. So if somebody is going to act on you and save you, you're not going to like it. And if you are sitting here and you are a Christian and you say, I believe in the Christ. First of all, why is there a definite article of the? I thought it was Christ, not the Christ. Well, it's the Christ here. See, it's confusing. If somebody is going to act on you, you are inviting contradiction into your life. You are saying, God, I don't make good decisions. And even the place where decisions come from, that pool, that reservoir, it's a poisoned well. And so I need you to do stuff I cannot do. It's going to be beyond your imagination, your preferences. That's the first thing, that salvation is an intervention because it is so complex and difficult. And you are so in it, you cannot uh, execute it on your own. I had this uh, image back to uh, two years ago when my little 16-pound cockapoo was infested with fleas. It's horrible. If, you've, if you have a dog and you've had fleas, you know they do not like Fleas. Dogs do not like fleas. It, it bothers them. In fact, if you leave a dog untreated, it will literally die. Fleas will kill a dog. 
You have to save it. It's incapable of saving itself. And then me, as the loving dog owner, acts on my dog. I am an intervening presence in the dog's life. And ask me if my dog liked being bathed with dish soap over and over and over again. And then having his curly matted hair combed through over and over and over again. Of course not. Of course not. The dog who does not like fleas is incapable of getting rid of the fleas. And if I am not present in my dog's life, it will do the very same things again, which got it fleas in the first place. For me, saving my dog means contradicting my dog. It means acting on my dog in a way that the dog does not like. If you're a Christian here, that's what you've signed up for. That's the first principle. Do you still want to be saved? Do you still want to be a Christian? If you're here, you're not a Christian, run now. There are three more principles I'm going to go over. If you don't like this one, you're not going to like any of the other ones. Do you want surprises in your life? Then ask to be saved. Do you want to be ignored and contradicted while somebody is supposedly doing good stuff to you? Become a Christian. That's it. That's the first principle. Um, I have some verses that illustrate this, but I'm going to skip these for the sake of time. Salvation is an intervention. Second principle is found in verse 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Here's the second principle. Salvation is focused on inner, eternal matters of the human soul. Salvation is focused on inner, eternal matters of the human soul. What do you think about that? That this work that God is doing is primarily invisible. You know, sometimes I have a glimpse of what God is doing, and it blows my mind. But most of the time, I don't know what he's doing. I was thinking about this for myself, and uh, I grew up with a very strong mom. She uh, isn't quite sort of tiger mom, uh, but she was tough on me. And the three things that I remembered just growing up, my mom drilling into uh, my consciousness every day, one was Peter... You have to be thankful. This is what she'd say. She said to me, if you're not thankful, you're a beast. Because she said, animals don't say thank you. Give a dog a piece of meat. It swallows it whole and just wants more. Wipes it, licks its mouth clean and walks away from you as soon as you don't have any more. That's what you are. You're a beast if you don't know how to say thank you. She said, be thankful. Because what do you have that somebody didn't give to you? Why are you not thankful? And every day, just on me about being thankful. 
Another thing that she was always on me about was being humble. She said, why are you arrogant? You have all the reason in the world to be humble. The ugliest thing you can be is arrogant. Why aren't you humble? And she just drilled this thing in me. You know, and so it went on like this my whole life. And I was thinking about this this week. I was talking with Susie about this thing called humility. And I realized that I just came off so much more arrogant before. But recently, I've been getting a lot of feedback. People saying, Peter, your sermons are strong, and there's a, there's a sort of a punch to them, but you come across as very humble. I got like three pieces of feedback like this just this week. So I was thinking about this idea of humility and realizing, you know, even last year, I don't know if anybody would accuse me of being humble. Maybe not even last week, but I had a good week, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I think about this principle of humility, and I look back, and I think, you know, God's been working on this. It's taken 42 years for me to have a week where three people tell me that I come across as slightly maybe humble. I don't know that God is doing that work. It's invisible to me. It's undetectable to me. And there are moments when I realize God is humbling me. But then I forget about it, and life goes on. And the next problem, you know, takes front and center. But then I remember God's still working on this. He has his finger on it, and he's working. I guess this point is sort of an encouragement to you. And it may be encouragement to you about somebody else that you think is hopeless, that you feel like will never change. You know, sometimes I'm not surprised when people don't change and they're still the same. But sometimes I'm shocked when there is transformation in a person. And I think, man, God must be real if this person can change. Encouragement that Salvation is invisible, but God is at work. Here's principle number three, found in verse three. And this we will do if God permits. The principle is this. Salvation consists of interaction between divine and human will. Churches have split over this. I'm sure people have been murdered over this, in fact. Captured in such a pithy statement, this dynamic that's caused war and uh, ravaged people's minds for centuries. This we will do, that's human will, if God permits, that's divine sovereignty. Is it God or is it man? What part do I play, if any, Am I sort of just the player on stage following a script? Or is there really such a thing as free will? Am I contributing at all? Does what I do matter? You know, you might ask the question, why should I pray? What's the point of prayer if God's will prevails anyway? You don't have to be in middle school to ask the question. Why should we pray? Who cares what you think or what you do? Why not just be fatalistic about it? Why not just do nothing or do whatever? 
Who cares? Because it's God's will versus ours, and God always wins. And maybe it's a figment of our imagination interpreting what we do as will in the first place. Maybe there is no free will. What do you think? As it pertains to your salvation, is it God or is it you? This is an important question because it goes straight to motivation. It goes straight to meaning. If you don't have meaning in your actions, why act? Right? Here's what I think, according to chapter 6, that divine sovereignty is real. There is God's purpose, which is unchangeable. And in order to communicate the unchangeability of his promises and his will to us, God even swears an oath. And he can't swear, you know, he can't say, I swear to God. So he says, I swear to God, because he's God. There's nobody higher than himself. That's what the chapter says. Men swear to God, and God swears to God, because he's the place where the buck stops. But here's the thing we see in chapter 6, that divine sovereignty increases human responsibility. It doesn't decrease it. And I think this is what we're going to find when we are standing before our maker and we have our 20,000 questions for him. One of the questions will be, well, God, was it you or was it me? And he will say yes. Because he's going to have been more sovereign than we ever imagined. But we are going to have been more responsible for our actions than we dare hope. It's going to be scary how responsible we were. Every act, every thought, every intention of the human heart discerned by the word of God as we studied last time. God knows everything. And the scriptures teach that we will give an account to everything. There is no secret that God does not know. The book, if there is such a thing, has on record every single aspect of your life, every moment recorded. God knows everything about you, and we are responsible for every thought, intention, act. This is absolutely true. And yet, somehow, God will have been sovereign through it all. And the amazing thing that we see also in this chapter is there's divine sovereignty, which leads to human responsibility. But this human responsibility doesn't lead to arrogance. Because generally, you know, if you are emphasizing performance in your life and your own choices and your actions. The gospel you preach is your actions. You know, it's like, oh, I, the way I saved myself is by working out three times a week. I changed my diet and now I'm much healthier. And the gospel you preach is the gospel of eating right and working out, right? You believe in yourself more. But the way the, chap- the, way the author writes out chapter six is God is sovereign. His purposes will prevail. His promises are true. No force on earth can stop it. And yet, our human responsibility, our response to that increases. And 
along with human action increasing, also humility increases rather than arrogance. How does that work? How is God sovereign and we are human and we are also then made more humble? It's a great mystery. And uh, there is just a few verses that illustrate this. Verse 3, as we said, and this we will do if God permits. Verse 5, it is impossible to renew them again. Impossible? I thought it was God, and he can do that. Verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, as if our choice matters. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love, meaning that what we do, there's meaning. Verse uh, 11 and 12, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. There's that word again, uh, pertaining to work, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. That's the opposite of uh, being diligent, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Well, was it patience? Was it diligence? Or is it God? Well, it's both. And then verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he obtained, that's Abraham, the promise. And then we have in verse 17 and 18, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his promise, interposes an oath. Now it says heirs. Heirs are different than workers because workers, you have to work for your paycheck. But heirs, by virtue of being a, a child, inherit. Well, which is it? Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope. There's promise and inheritance, and it's unchangeable, his purpose, but we are to take hold of it. That's our part, the grasping, the not letting go, the being patient. The, which is it? At the end, when all is said and done, Here is this word that I think salvation is. Salvation is efficacious. It means that it gets the job done. If God were to save us, if an outside force were to intervene in our life, but we lose our sense of self, we just become dumb, deaf, and stupid, and we are just on the receiving end of a God who's over-functioning, and we don't grow mature or healthier. We just grow passive, and we become inanimate. Is that salvation? No, because I want to be saved, not some lesser version of me. Somehow, if God is going to act on me, he has to do it in a way that not only preserves my human agency, my free will, but actually has to increase it. Makes me a better person. And that's humility, the trusting part, the, the asking and the thankful part, the part that's receiving and inheriting. So there is God who's all powerful, whose will will prevail, acting on me, a person, without decreasing my human agency. Isn't that amazing? Who but God can do that? You know, I think about uh, who does that. And you know who does that? Parents are called to do that. You are called to be sovereign and powerful, to exploit your position as a parent over your child's life 
without decreasing the child's sense of personal responsibility, but increasing it. That's a small little sliver of what God does when he's saving us. So salvation is efficacious. It gets the job done right. Okay, here's a fourth principle found in verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. If you did a word cloud of this chapter, the word that would show up the largest in a word cloud is the word hope. So here's principle number four. Salvation feels like hope. What is hope? Hope creates tension between the past, present, and future. Let me give you an example to illustrate this. I was talking to a uh, uh, mom yesterday, and she, she shared that she has a family coming over for dinner. And so in the morning, in a crock pot, she put together a stew. And uh, dinner was going to happen in just a little bit, and uh, she said this statement. She said, I hope the stew turns out well. And then she added, because there is nothing else. And this interesting thing about making stew in a crock pot is you can't taste it. You know, your ingredients are raw, and you can't taste it as it cooks, and you can't add things while it's cooking. So you sort of put it together, follow the recipe uh, as well as you can, and then you sort of hope it turns out well. Because for her, it was going to be stew and water, or just water, for dinner. Now, there's two statements she's making in there about hope. What she's saying is, I hope the stew turns out well, meaning I wish it would turn out well. Right? That's one way to hope. And she made another statement, though, about the stew, which is, the stew is my only hope. She has her full weight sitting on top of the stew. You, you get this? Salvation is our hope. It means we believe in God. And we're choosing then to allow that belief in God, a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, to be able to execute efficacious salvation on us as an outside agency acting, intervening in our life. We're putting our hope in that. And what that means is it's either God or nothing. You're coming to believe in God. And what that means for us is that we are making choices and decisions based on the firmness of this hope, the truthfulness, the, uh, the power of this hope. It's either stew or nothing. She had made her whole decision about the whole day and the evening on this one pot of stew that she made. And that's what it means to be a Christian. So, for example, for me, if I believe in God, it's going to affect the decisions and the choices I make about my money. Because the same God who says, trust in me, said to be generous and to give my money away to those who are the least, the last, and the poor. That's what scripture teaches. And in my mind, my mind, I don't want to do that. That makes no sense to me. I want to hold on to my money. But the scriptures teach generosity. So because God is my hope, I make a decision about my money. 
You know, so 10, 20, 30% of my gross income is gone to all other people. I don't, I don't know. It's gone. But I've made a decision. It means that I make decisions about how I engage my sexuality as a person. My body, my mind, the culture, peer pressure, things are telling me to act differently, to make different kinds of choices. But I believe in God and what he's teaching me about sexuality and its intended purpose and place. And so I make choices about that. And I know I am doing this because it's God in whom I hope and God tells me these things. So it affects my daily living. It affects how I do relationships. I will be kind and patient and maybe I'll even forgive once in a while. Because the same God who says I'm your salvation in whom I place my hope says to forgive. And so if you're putting your weight on something, if you're betting on something, if you're trusting in something, it affects your daily choices. You're willing to risk missing out on some very potentially good and fun things because you are choosing to bet on something else. So salvation feels like hope. It helps you reinterpret the past, gives you perspective. It energizes the present moment because it's infused with meaning, and it gives you a vision for the future if you have a hope. Now, it's fair to ask the question, what is your hope? What is your hope? What, what are you betting on? What do you really think is going to feed you at the end of the day? You know, if, if your hope is really money, if that's what you're betting on, you're going to hoard it. You're going to have to have it. You're going to have to tie your identity to it. You're going to have to tie your happiness and sense of well-being to it. If money comes crashing down, you are going to come crashing down. What is your hope? And some verses worth uh, reading together, verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Verse 13, for when God made the promise. Verse 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Verse 17 and 18, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, that's betting on, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Salvation feels like hope. It's trusting in somebody's promises and causing that trust to affect your daily decisions. Hope, salvation feels like hope on the inside and looks like better decisions based on that internal hope on the outside. Let's conclude here with Jesus, the author of our salvation. 
I put together some verses that I, I hope will paint a picture of what salvation is at the end here. Verse 11, 17, 18, 19, 20 kind of uh, redacted for us here. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, to the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Where the writer of Hebrews is taking this chapter is to chapter 7, which sets up uh, this teaching about Jesus, who is a type of priest in the order of what the author calls Melchizedek. And we'll get into Melchizedek the next time. Uh, But what the author is saying is that all of these promises that God made regarding our salvation was fulfilled and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That ultimately the pathway to God is not a set of principles or rules or do's and don'ts. It's not self-improvement, but it's a person. It's connection to the person of Jesus. He embodies God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He embodies grace and truth. And what we are ultimately saved by is a person carrying us as a forerunner into the presence of God. That's the phrase within the veil, talking about the holy of holies. If you want to be saved, you have to look to Christ. He is the perfect God-man, both grace and truth, embodied in a person that we look to and worship today. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you for uh, this teaching on salvation. And even as I teach it, it seems really uh, way above my pay grade. And uh, intellectually thinking about it is one thing, and experiencing it and walking in it is another So I pray for your mercy and patience as we walk uh, through life, setting our hope on you. You You are our hope, we say. And we pray to you and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.